It's the second season of Improv Town. I am your host and ambassador, Clayton Mashad. We're back at the Ocean State Improv Festival. And this time we have an interview with artistic director, Christopher Simpson. He talks about Johnstonian improv and doing improv in a scriptive theater. And you're going to love it. Enjoy. Sound check. Check sound one. Two, three, go. Ready? Water and recording. Gurgle, 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 Alright, cool. Cool. So normally we like start with how people get into improv. Sure. You're kind of like a triple, quadruple threat, right? You're not just an improviser, but you are an actor, or a scripted actor, and then you artistically direct, basically run Contemporary Theater Company, which is a scripted theater, and then you run the Ocean State Improv Festival. So, yeah, so you don't need to talk about specifically how you got into... Well, it's an, it's an improv podcast. I'd yeah, be, yeah, but yeah. like, uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a good question. Um, I assume some of that stuff ties in. How did you become the artistic director of a theater that does yeah. improv? How does one make all of those bad decisions in a row? Like, how does one not learn from one's mistakes yeah. so successfully? Yeah, right. No, uh, yeah, I think I have the the most charmed and best life in the world. Um, so I'll tell you how how you can you too can have this success. Um, I uh, yeah, I was. I mean, I was interested in theater. Regardless of, I, I use the word theater to describe scripted and improvised theater um, concurrently. Uh, I, I only split them out when I need to. I got into theater at all in like one of those elementary school instances where you, where someone somewhere got a grant to visit a bunch of elementary schools, and I don't know the story at all. And they showed up, and I was in first grade, and the teacher was like, "Chris is a kid who it would be." pretty useful to have step out of the room for a couple of hours so let's get rid of him and so I went and one kid from each class was like we rehearsed and we were in this play and I don't remember really anything about what it was but the main character was like able to pause time or something like that and I remember this moment of being a so first it was a play of the Adam Sandler movie exactly that's right that's precisely right but yeah right. that was the prequel um, <laughs> the origin story the origin story to Adam Sandler and when they and I remember this moment of all of us being on stage and like the music screeches to a halt and the guys that like says pause and we all froze and I could see all my classmates in the front row because of the first graders who were in the front row all like sit up and be like oh my god like time is stopped on stage right now and I was like this is the coolest thing in the world these the people the yeah the magic of theater right and like it's a cliche story but it's like like I like to give a lot of credit to whoever those three or four people were who came by and did that at my school and like changed my life. Whoever that teacher was who kicked me out of class. Yeah, right. Yeah, thanks, Miss Doherty. Um, but yeah, so that was awesome, and that got me into theater. And then I was ever since just like you know a lot. Of, there's a lot of theater kids out there who have the story of like I did did it in middle school and I did it in high school and when I went to college. In my case, I was like I'm going to get serious and study something real. And within like half an hour, I dropped out of some advanced level class I didn't want to be in and instead was like taking a theater class or like building a set for some student production or whatever. And I just couldn't get away from it. I didn't really want to. And after my freshman year of college, I came back to my hometown, which is a small town, Wakefield or South Kingstown, Rhode Island. We have about 30,000 people. There was an art center that didn't have anything going on for the summer. And I said, hey, can I direct a play with some of my friends from high school? So I did. Uh, They said yes. And we made like 800 bucks and we're like, sweet. This is like cash cow let's go and so the next summer we did two plays and the next summer we did three plays and by then I was getting pretty serious at school about theater as well so I took um I took this is while I was in college yeah during summer vacations we were doing all that exactly um we started doing a 24-hour play festival which is like a one-day event you can do every winter while everyone was home from winter break and we were like having a lot of fun 
And I took a year off before my senior year, and I traveled, and I worked in some professional theaters, and just did a bunch of cool stuff. I had a great time. And when I graduated, I uh, decided to come back home and try to launch this as a full-time, at the time, scripted theater company. And uh, I got lucky because I got a little bit of support early on from the university. I received a fellowship, which helped me fund my own work for the first year. Um, and some friends came along, and we spent this time just kind of goofing off and trying to make theater. And we worked in schools and libraries and parks and like beaches and restaurants after they closed like a restaurant that was like yeah you can rehearse here just like lock up when you leave and like all kinds of crazy stuff that never should have happened and which is like it kept working and people loved it and we loved it and by the end of that year when some of my friends were like okay i gotta go get a real job and my fellowship was out we were just like just big enough that we were like, yeah, this can keep going. And we kind of used that year as a launch, and then we've been going ever since. So there was no... That was 2009. So, was... so you still never done improv that? So late 2009, um, we met a guy named Ryan Hardigan. He's from New Zealand. He's now a professor uh, of theater history or performance studies in Seattle. And Ryan Hardigan had studied with Keith Johnstone and done a bunch of improv with Wit, which is the Wellington Improv Theater in New Zealand. Um, and he was around here at Brown University getting his PhD in performance studies, I think. And um, and I met him randomly at like a street festival. And he was like, you do theater? That's funny. I do theater. And we like talked and we started, he started working with us. And before very long, he was like, this improv stuff is like pretty useful for actors. We ought to do a class. You don't have to ever perform necessarily. And we're like, yeah, sure, whatever. So we did our first Improv 101, we called it, in uh, April or May of 2010. And it was a blast. And a bunch of the actors um, who are still at our theater now and a bunch of folks who aren't, we all took that class and loved it. And we were like, yeah, we got to do more of this. So we started doing some shows when he wasn't around that were all terrible. <laughs> you know, everyone, every, I'm sure everyone on your podcast is like, oh, my early shows were a disaster. Ours were a disaster. They were terrible. Um, but we had, a, we had a ball doing them. And then uh, we offered the class again and we did some more and we did some more. And in 2012, by then we were getting pretty decent and we were lucky some friends up in Maine would have us up in Bangor to perform in their little, they have a, a beer, like a, it's a draft house, a Nocturnum draft house in, in oh, Bangor, yeah, yeah. Maine. You've been there? Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So we went up there and like did some shows with them, which kind of like gave us a feeling of like, oh, there's like, there's some real, you, this is a real world you can get into. And so by 2012, um, we were opening our permanent venue that we have now where we have the Ocean State Improv Festival where we do all of our shows. And we were like, let's have a weekly improv show to go with all the scripted stuff. So we added Maestro, which is one of Keith Johnstone's formats. And we started doing that every Friday night. And that went on for years. And we kept adding more stuff around it and more stuff around it. Um, we do narrative improv shows now. We do a lot of different kinds of work. Um, we have a pretty large community of students and performers. And we train a lot of our scripted actors in improvisational skills. We train a lot of our improv actors in scripted theater skills. And it's just becoming more and more kind of a blend of, like, what does this show need? We'll do this thing with more improv or less or whatever. And then we also have the short-form shows and the troops and the different kinds of stuff that, that we like to do. And that's kind of how we got to where we are. Did I answer your question? What are we talking about? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, how you got into improv. But I, I suppose that kind of... That is the answer. Is there anything, like, specific from, like, the personal... Because uh, you're, uh, yeah. you're in... Uh, what do you guys... Bait and switch. Yeah, I've got a duo. And bait and switch, um, and some other stuff that I do. Yeah, I. Uh, serious I think, actors. Yeah, serious yeah. Theater. Some of my gimmicks. I don't know if you can call like actual troops, but serious theater with real actors is one of my favorite things I've done. I did, I've done it with with uh, Dane Wadane Juno from Paris, and I've done it with Kevin, uh, who's the artistic director down at Dad's Garage in Atlanta. 
um, and some other other people and other stuff. And that's a really bizarre format. I'd love to tell you about it, but it basically just it doesn't translate to description. But it's it blends some of the borders of what's possible. I think. Yeah, you pretend to be really pretentious New York assholes who have come to illuminate this small town with. Yeah. Yeah, and when we do it, so like, so it's like it's probably a show that you shouldn't do for more than fifteen or twenty minutes. It's not like a long show, um, but we go on stage. And it's basically three parts. First, we get an introduction where they're like, "Up next, serious theater with real actors," and inevitably they say the name wrong because that's part of how it works when you're like a guest troupe and they're just handing them a piece of paper. It's like this is the name of our company. And they're like, oh, "I can I can remember that." So they say it wrong and we make fun of them. And then we go on stage and we're like, "This is a charming little institution. It's nice that the people of your community have like." Bonded, yeah, bonded together to create some place for you to try to explore what art is. Like the fact that you've never done anything of worth on the stage isn't isn't important. The fact that you're doing it is really what speaks to the human condition. <laughs> and like it's it's pretty it's pretty caustic, but for whatever reason, people really like it. I think it's because we are genuinely parodying ourselves. It's like people who take themselves seriously at any point. And also people who have been condescended to. Like, you can see that in yourself. I really believe, really, really fundamentally, that theater, improvised or otherwise, is um, is funniest when you can recognize some of yourself and what's happening on stage. When you're chasing a joke or a gag, it can be fun, but it also, if it's not truthful, it gets a laugh, but not a lot of laughter. But if there's something where you're like, oh, God, I know that guy, or oh, man, my life is like that, or I've, I've been there, those kinds of moments are when people really respond. And so we're sort of chasing the pretension of serious artists but also knowing that on some level we're kind to those people too and i think that's why audiences like it if that makes sense yeah i never really thought about the uh that form in terms of like the fact that you're doing it at a scripted theater and you guys are are also actors like you're doing it because i wonder yeah i almost wonder how that form would go over if you were doing it at like a straight-up improv theater to an audience that wasn't a theater audience, but was a comedy audience. Yeah. And like, I wonder if it would. I wonder if it would work as well. So I feel like it works. It works so well because of the environment and because of the like. Yeah. When I come on stage and I'm like this shitty little place you all have built, everyone knows I've spent my adult life building it. Like, so there's a certain self self awareness there. But also, like, when we did it in a, at Dad's Garage, which is a sweet theater, um, they're they're a phenomenal institution down there, and they're on fire with great content and great shows in Atlanta. Are they all improv? Uh, mostly, they do they do a scripted show like once a year, or maybe even more than that. I know they they think of their identity as having both, but I don't really, I don't know their programming super tightly. But they do a lot of improv. That's definitely what it seems like their majority is. Regardless, uh, you know, we did the same thing down there, and, and Kevin was kind of making fun of his lobby where they were where we were doing the thing, and. They, the audience was amazed by it. But then I've also gone and done it at festivals in like Albany and places like improv festivals, and people seem pretty receptive. So I, the, the description, it, it wasn't quite done. We, we do that first section where we like introduce ourselves and we talk about how we're here to show culture to people who have never seen it before, and it becomes eventually pretty clear. You know, and we dress, I mean, it's like all black, three piece suit kind of attire, it's like very slick. Um, and very condescending. Then we go backstage and spend a minute or two warming up like actors do so that there's nothing for you to look at on stage and like you can hear us maybe, but maybe you can't and it's not really what it's... We just do two minutes of a warm-up for ourselves while you sit out there and wonder if the show's still going on. And then we come out and it helps that we're pretty committed actors and we have a lot of physical improv training and physical theater training. So we do pretty intense heavily lit like with lots of like lighting changes and stuff improvised absurd theater or like avant-garde theater and we'll just reincorporate 
a callback to the same themes over and over again, so it feels very artistic. Like there's no plan, obviously. It's an improv show, but like yeah. we know we know we'll improvise a piece, and so we'll go out there and just like start making a sound that will keep echoing and bring in like. You know, one of my favorite pieces of, of thought on showing emotion on stage is, comes from, like, sort of Japanese cinema where if it's a really emotional moment, instead of showing you an emotional human, just, like, the man will stand there and say, like, it's been raining for two weeks. And you know that that means, like, his heart is broken or whatever. Like, they have a heavy culture yeah. of metaphor and imagery like that. So we'll lean heavily on that kind of stuff. And it's just weird. And it's heavily, heavily committed. That's the only word for it. And then they black it out. And we come out and do a talkback where we, quote... Uh, the phrase we always use that we really like is we correct the audience's misunderstandings about the play. Uh, and and we just, again, we go back to being mean to everybody. And it's weird that people love it, but they do. Yeah. I guess to some extent it's like a, it's like a broadened genre piece. Mm-hmm. Like where the, where the genre includes the presentation, like the pretentious city slicker coming to the small town being an asshole. Right. Doing some avant-garde thing that no one would understand. <laughs> And then coming out and yelling at people for not understanding it. Yeah. That is the entire genre rather than the avant-garde being the genre. Yeah. The genre is like that experience. That's right. And you're just doing a, a genre a genre improv show of that experience. Where the genre isn't the piece, but the experience of someone yeah. showing you that piece. Yeah, exactly. It's really fun and it's really, it's really peculiar. I think I believe extraordinarily deeply in the premise that improv is a display of good nature or should be i think that um the audience the reason the audience enjoys it when you struggle when you fail and when you succeed is because they see your humanity and they know you're doing a tightrope walk up there and they're okay with failure or success if you seem like a genuine earnest person who's up there having a good time and wants to give them a good time and you're not attached to your success or failure too much if you can remain light about it the the good nature is part of the value of an improv show and in this format, we never break. We never really talk to them as ourselves. It's always in character. Um, and it's really caustic characters. But I think the fact that we're having fun and we know that we're sort of trolling ourselves as well as them creates that benevolent good feeling, even though the show isn't about that, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Do you, I don't know. I mean, you've seen the show. Does that, yeah. does that sound like an accurate or maybe not? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I think you're making fun of your yourselves just as much as... The audience. Well, you're not really making fun of the audience. You're making fun of like audiences in a. Yeah, I think when we make fun, when you ask a question, you're like, you know, you said that the piece was going to be about betrayal, but I actually never saw any betrayal up there or whatever. What you're saying is like your conceit has a hole in it. You're improvising and you messed up. And our response is like everyone else in the audience saw it. You're the only one who missed it. Ask anyone else and they can explain it to you. (laughs) And the person knows they're not really being made fun of. We're saying, yeah, you're right. You caught us. The thing we claimed to want to do didn't actually happen, but we're going to put on arrogance as a defense, and they don't really feel typically belittled. Yeah. It's also kind of cool, like, from the, the audience, because you never get to, like, see a play and then afterwards be like, well, I thought that play was pretty sh-. Like, talk to the director. Right. Like, Your play was pretty shitty. There was a lot of plot holes, and uh, I didn't believe that those two characters were really in love. Yeah. Like, you never get to say that. <laughs> you couldn't say that on a top back. No. Or, or, like, no one would have the audacity. Yeah, you, it doesn't get done very much, it certainly. It doesn't get done very much. Unless you're, like, a very hard critic. Yeah, unless you're, yeah you're a douchebag. But I feel like just being able to, like, have... It's almost, like, fun just to be able to have that experience of, like... There's some people on stage who just performed something. And I know that, if, like, I'm going to point out all the things that were ridiculous about it. But they know that, but because it's improv, it's a job repeat. Like, 
yeah. I think it was ridiculous. It's not really a criticism as much as it's just like, I get to... I was here. I, I, I saw something and I want to play along. I get to be part along. of the improv. Yeah. I was like... It's a str- I, I honestly think it's a strange thing that it works, but it does. It's taught me a lot. I've only We've only done, I don't know, maybe we're coming up on our 10th performance of it ever like at the festival this year so it's not like a format that we play all the time because i don't think you can play it to the same audience repeatedly that's not really what it's all about um yeah, yeah it's it like maybe two or three times yeah that's... my favorite one was you guys came out and you were like you said something about oh well, i'm sure a lot of it was lost in translation because it's it's a uh, it's translated from the french right or something and then i think it was uh eric was like well, what was it like originally in French? And you went back and redid the entire set. Oh my god, did like, that happen? Yeah. In like, in like French gibberish. Right. Well, Dane speaks French, so I don't know how much of it was French gibberish on his part. Uh, like, you know, everything Dane said was probably real French, but everything I said was definitely not. You have no idea whether it was gibberish or not. Yeah, right, he could have been making it up. That's uh, Dane, Dane's very, very But like, good. yeah, the whole show seemed over, then it was like, what was it like in French? And it was like, I guess we'll show you. Yeah, that's... We're going to now redo the entire, try to recreate the entire thing. Yeah, I think, imp- I mean, this is sort of a larger conversation, I suppose, now, but like, which is, I guess, the point of a podcast, yeah, so that's, that's good. How uh, ends up being two hours. Right. But I think improvisation, sort of by definition, is like theater that is created on stage in the moment, and any- that can mean anything. You can do anything. You can go on stage and do a spelling bee, you can go on stage and do a full-length musical, you can do a herald or a deconstruction, you can do a short-form show, you can do, you know, you can just make up whatever parameters you want and you'd be excited by and go on stage and do them. And I think everything that I've described, everything you could do out there and everything that's a game or a structure or a form or a format whether it's Maestro in theater sports or, you know, the event day or the Armando or like a full length improvised show like Who Done It or like, you know, some famous ones like Spontaneous Broadway or, you know, um, improvised Shakespeare Company, Showstoppers, any of those kinds of things. They're all just choices you make to limit the field of all possible things to a subset so that you can kind of like find an entry point, I think. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And this one we stumbled into the idea from inspiration on like, wouldn't it be fun to do this thing? Let's try it. And it turned out to reveal to me, like by like playing with what sliders of like, do you, is it shorter? Is it long? Is it, is it aiming to be, uh, you know, in a genre or not when we didn't really aim for it to be, it turns out it is, you described it as one and you're right. But like, that wasn't really what we were thinking. Uh, all, whatever the sliders, whatever the variables are in the thing, is there a lot of second show, you know, breaking or is there not? And the answer is there's not. I taught myself a ton about improv by playing this really weird concept and realizing what works and what doesn't in that weird vein, in that slice of what's possible, where you pretend to be one character, you're on stage from your introduction on, you're playing a character, which isn't how all shows work, and you like we, you walk on stage as that character and you leave the stage as that character and you never show yourself, except for through the character, obviously. And like all of the things about it, it's taught me a lot about what an audience sees and thinks and wants and doesn't want when you're doing an improv show. It's been really interesting. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, because there are like two exercises that I've done that people do a lot that I, that I think are pretty similar to that and are always interesting. Like the one is the one is go out and try not to be funny. Yeah. You're try, like that's, go yeah. But or try to be like very obviously go out and try not to be funny. That's they always tell you in improv don't try don't like try but like well no but don't try to be funny and try not to be funny are two very different right. things. Okay. Yeah. Right. So yeah, they are. Yeah. So yeah, try. Try not to be funny. And and those scenes always end up being 
funny. The laughs you get are almost sometimes are are bigger than than when you're going out and you're per- like purposely trying to to make laughs. And then there's the second exercise that I did when I took the workshop with Craig Gakowski at PIF last year, where he just said go out and try to improvise as if you were improvising a, a scripted work. Like you pretend that you've spent all the time memorizing everything, that everything is blocked out. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's a it's a serious dramatic work. Like pretend it's a streetcar named Desire, like right. not not that it is, but like pretend it's something that it's, it's in just that level, as, yeah. Just as like, and then go out and do scenes. And it's so interesting, like how different how different the people act or perform. But it's it's not it's in no way like worse. So it's kind of like weird. Why when you go up and you're just doing total improv, it's so different than than when you just go up and you would be like pretending to be doing an actual committed yeah. play where you knew what you were doing where in some ways like that is the, what you're trying to do in improv of course it is improv so the fact that there are mistakes and that people are messing up is one of the best parts of it yeah but you are trying to go up and i don't know the best compliment you can get after an improv show is like you wrote that right like you couldn't have made that up like huh. that's, that's when you know you've kind of not always because of course part of the improv is the is the fact that they know it's a process and not yeah, yeah, yeah. a product, but... Yeah, I don't agree that that's the biggest compliment, but that definitely is a kind of compliment that can mean a whole lot to me and to anyone. Like, that's one, one of the yeah, ways, I mean, one of the many ways... The best compliment improv- would be, you're the best improviser in the world. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Clearly a better compliment. What a great but. question. What is the best compliment an improviser can, can receive? But, to your, yeah, to your point, like, that's one of the ways in which you can have a really, really strong night. And I think that's a really fun thing when that happens. When, we, when we've done serious theater, as an example, that, that people always know that we're improvising the intro and the outro because, like, it's talk back with the audience and, like, we're answering questions and commenting what we really see in the space and stuff like that. But people have often asked, like, is that middle piece, like, something you've rehearsed and built? And, like, in that setting, that's a great compliment to us because that's what we're aiming for in that, in those five, six, seven, eight minutes of our show. And that's, yeah. But then if they said, like, at the talk back, like, oh, was that all prepared? I'd be like, Man, I must have done a really bad job if you didn't realize that I was playing with you. Um, right. So yeah, it kind of comes. Because otherwise, against. that would just be an uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Situation. Yeah. Right. Um, I forget what I was going to say next. Oh well, yeah. No, I don't. I remember what I was going to say next because you just something you said made me think of it. When I last time, I, uh, two times ago, when I was studying with Sean Kinley out of Calgary, who's a great teacher. He, he, in my opinion, is probably the best teacher I've ever worked with of improv or anything. I really highly recommend working with Sean Kinley. He uh, he said, improvisation is made up of two things, the spirit and the technique that you use. Um, and I think it's a really useful image. And I actually read a book by Anne Bogart, who is a great director of scripted work. Um, and she says in her books and things where she's like, improv, you know, improvised theater is a great training tool and it's not for performance. And I'm like, go fuck yourself. But then also elsewhere in her book, she's utterly brilliant. So it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting read for a, a, a theater person or an improv person probably if you're willing to read some stuff and be like, I don't agree with that, but I do agree with that. I recommend her book, um, What's the Story? It's called by Anne Bogart. Um, anyway, she says in it, art is made up of three things. And she used slightly different words, but her definition made it really clear that you could say spirit, technique, and content. And I think that is even more useful to me than what Sean said. So to unpack that a little bit, the technique is like really obvious. It's like, you know, in a, in a musical, like the quality of your voice, your sense for rhythm, your sense for rhyme, your maybe if you want to get to advanced level technique, it's like your ability to set up a modulation, set up someone else's rhyming line, like all of these different things that you can do as an, as a technical improviser and you can go out there and be so slick 
and put together, polished fast and without risk that people could be like, that was an improv, uh, that was a scripted musical. And they lied to me and said it was improvised and people would love it because people love scripted musicals. So you'd be, if you did a good job, you'd be fine. But, um, and the t- that would be all built on the technique probably. And maybe the content, right? If it ends up being a really beautiful story or a really funny story or something where they're like, that resonated with me, then the content's strong and the technique's strong. But in my opinion, improvisational spirit is also really important. And that's where I could see them having such a good time making it up and it just made me want to like hang out with them. Or they they really failed and they mentioned like in the content, they were like, this piece isn't going as well as we thought it would and that's fine because we're here with you and we're loving it. And they somehow gave you this impression of like, that was a disaster and we know it, but don't worry. And the audience again will love you. They'll want to hang out with you after the show. Or you could be like really clearly good and really clearly stepping on one another, you know, like the the terms like pantsing one another, like or or making other people work really hard or ripping their stuff apart to get the big laugh, and like people are like yeah, your technique was good or whatever. Maybe that that probably wouldn't even. I don't think anyone would say that, but you get the idea. You could be really slick, but not that joyful and not that generous and not that good natured, and people would be impressed, but they wouldn't love you. And I think, I think a lot of spirit makes a good show. And a lot of technique on top of it makes a great show. But a lot of technique doesn't make a great show unless the spirit's also there. That's kind of my belief. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just said a whole lot of shit. I don't know if that's useful or not. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Okay. So she's saying spirit is part of, of the broader art? Was that, that was one of the three? Yeah. So I think, I forget, I haven't read her book since last summer or fall. But I think she was like passion, which... Which when I read into her definition of passion was like, oh yeah, spirit. And improv spirit is a better word for it. But yeah, pa- yeah, but but in, but in painting or dance, passion can be an equally valuable word for it. And then technique or skill, and then content, right? So you can make you can make a really beautiful piece of theater that's clearly incredibly skillful, great choreography, diction, uh, writing, really wonderful callbacks and reincorporations, really beautiful messages. You could perform it with all the skill in the world great spirit a great technique a great content but there maybe there's no passion to it scripted theater you can kind of get away with it improvised theater i don't think you can yeah yeah i think the the, the spirit is yeah it is it is like the defining because like because i think that right passion and spirit like when you're thinking about them analogously those are kind of the analogous words but it's but i often like you know a piece of art like you can tell like oh this person really put their their heart and their soul into it like it's passion but it's slightly different than like the than than like the the spirit because the spirit is removed like you're not seeing the artist creating yeah the, the in thing. like a painting or a sculpture right or, right. or even a movie like that yeah. you're watching like right. you're like oh this, this clearly the director felt passionately about the or the like it the becomes writer. a different thing yeah I agree right whereas like in improv you're watching the process yeah of the creation so then the spirit becomes so much more integral to it because it's more on display it's not yeah it's not as removed so yeah and like live art dance film i'm sorry not film specifically not film dance um like concert music um uh theater improvised or scripted those things are they work on our brain in a different way when you watch film, it lights up. Like if you watch, someone watches a film in an MRI, it lights up the parts of their brain associated with memory and associated with like um, storytelling and these kinds of things. When they watch live art, the part of your brain that's kinesthetically connected to this is happening to me right now is actually more active. It's a more 
visceral thing because it is real people really in front of you and the sense that the actor could jump off the stage and kiss you or, or kick you or kill you like is real and activates us in a different way they're both valid they're both good there's lots of reasons to watch all kinds of stuff but theater uh improvised or scripted turns on a different part of our brain because we sense i am here while this is happening and it's really happening right now and it's not a memory i'm experiencing it's an event that i'm at and that's a different thing. And I think it's really cool. And improv has the ability to take that further than scripted theater because not only is it right now, it is being invented right now. It is being made for us in this moment. And if I sneeze in the third row, the actor might look over and say, bless you, and then go back to telling his mom that he's got cancer. If my phone goes off in the audience, someone is going to, right. to incorporate that into the show. Because they're not constrained by an artifice that, that makes it scripted. Typically, you know, so I think it's really an amazing form. And so you've got to got to reward the fact that they came out to experience something real. And if you are good natured and I use that word a lot, um, that phrase, but it's it's really true. If I'm here to good natured means a lot. Right. I mean, I remember watching um, Ben Rameka at PIF last year from Airwolf uh, Providence Improv Fest. And he was on stage. I forget the name of the guy who was on stage with you and I saw that set. Do you remember? Uh, I he was great. I really liked that guy, but I can't remember his name right now. I know his name, but I just can't remember it. Okay. And, I, and I don't want to say it wrong. Okay, good. But there's a guy. Uh, but anyway, watching the two of them together, they had this look in their eyes of like, I'm going to twist you and fuck with you and make everything you do harder because I love you and want to see you at your best. And it was really joyful to watch. And when you watch Parallelogram of Phonograph out of Austin when they're performing together, you know, Rory is up there bullshitting and laughing at himself while he's doing it. Uh, and and it's so pure because he's like, I know this is kind of flimsy right now, but I'm going to make it better in time. My partners will come out here and build this with me. And like he leans into it and it gets better and better. And whether it's that like, I'm going to fuck with you, buddy, or that like, I know it's not there yet, but like hang with us. We're going to wrap it all up. And like that, that, those two moments are both really strong with spirit in really different ways. Or Kaiza, who, Kaiza Coco from Finland, who is one of my, one of my duo partners and one of my favorite improvisers in the world. She has this look with, of, of like, of love and passion. And she's just like, she's looking at you and she's like, everything you say is beautiful and I will reward it and I will go further with you in a way that almost no one else I've ever seen can do. Yeah. And it's inspiring. And, and like the three of them have radically different improv personas. Oh yeah, totally. But, but they're all ripe with, I'm here with you right now. I'm alive and I'm excited for this thing. And it makes you want to lean in and watch them. And it makes you want to come back for more. And it makes you want to stand up and cheer when they figure out how to do the impossible thing. Or when they fucking crumble under the impossible thing. And they're like, ah, I'm still here. It is what it is. And like, that's the spirit, I think. Yeah. And I think we lose that in a pursuit of technique, by the way. I think a lot of improvisers, especially aspiring improvisers, newer improvisers, people in our first, second, third, fourth, fifth years of improvising are like, I want to get so slick. I want to be able to make the rhyme. I want to be able to play the game. I want to be able to reincorporate or bring the thing back together in the group game or whatever their tactic is. And the spirit's not always there because there's such a drive to be technically good. Yeah. I often think, I don't think I've, I don't think I've said this on the podcast, but I think it's about a lot of, of, of things. But I feel like a little bit of improv is a bad thing as like an improv performer. Like you're probably better immediately before your level one class than you are at the end of your level one class because before it you can the only the only option you have is to act naturally to, to yeah. respond the way you would respond but as soon as as soon as you take a class especially at a more at a more rule driven a lot of um 
like in this level one, it's more like teaching the handles and, and the games and stuff and, and the CTCs as opposed to like... Oh, it's not. Nine, nine no. Four. It was probably, what, four years ago that you took it? Three years, four years ago? Yeah, it's, yeah more than that. It's, it's, uh, it's moved away from that heavily. Actually, interesting that uh, you say that. Yeah. Because well, I really... Well, I'm going to continue... Can you continue your thought? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, because we're something like a UCB that's way more like, here are the rules. Right. You know, whereas afterwards, you get so... Especially after a level one, you have all these things that you think you have to do, but you haven't practiced those things enough to, to, to do those things without thinking about them, which is when you actually get good at the technique. Yeah. When it's, just, when it's just, oh, this is just what I naturally do. I'm not even thinking about the fact, you know, we were playing the guitar, it's not like... You're not thinking about the next note to play. You're just like, oh, I got this. I got this technique down. Yeah, right. So I do think, like, right. If you think, if you think you stink, is a guitar teacher's maxim that I remember from when I was like in fourth grade. Well, yeah, I think that. Uh, yeah. that's awesome because I do think it, it applies just as much to to improv. Oh yeah, Keith Johnstone said it to me in a class I took with him. He said, "If you are trying to be good at this." You are always five seconds ahead planning the next thing to say or five seconds behind evaluating what you just said and you are not here and I can't play with you. If you're just trying to be here, we can do anything. But if you're trying to be good, you're planning or evaluating. You're not here. Yeah. And that ruins lots and lots of improvisers. It takes so long to get, to get past. I mean, I don't even... I, I think I... I mean... I mean yeah. After the multiple years that I've been doing improv, I still don't think I'm entirely past. Well, it goes in cycles too. You'll have anyone will have a great night of being present, and then immediately be like, "I'm good at this again. I'm good. I finally got it back." And the next show they do, they're planning and evaluating, and they're fucked up again. It's a yeah. process of learning how to ride that. I uh, our 101 now, which I teach. Um, I didn't always teach it, and I had, we had lots of strong teachers. But as I've been teaching it more and more over the last few years, and I've I've really doubled down on my studying. I've worked with. I've traveled a lot more and studied a lot more in the last three years than I did before that and improv. Um, and I really, really believe now that, like, my improv 101 students in the graduation show, they might get some games and handles thrown at them that they'd never seen before, but I don't preload, here's how you play, you know, a space jump or a time dasher or whatever the hell it might be. This is how you do a, um, what are some things that everybody, a hand scene or an ABC scene or what? Like, we don't teach that because it's not useful. It just makes you think that improv is a series of rules that you have to learn, and then when you know them, you'll be good. We teach for eight weeks. What is the spirit of not fearing failure? What is the what does it feel like to be present in the moment versus planning and evaluating? And we just teach you to to shake off mistakes and be yourself. And after eight weeks, they're pretty good at that, and they're pretty bad at like editing their own scenes or you know whatever yeah i really like that way of teaching of of level one so so i interviewed tim mahoney yeah the who who taught my level one here yeah obviously so yeah and i liked him a lot absolutely and in the episode was about like how do you teach one-on-one like how do you teach improv not to people who know how to do improv and want to get better at it how do you do it to people who yeah have no idea about what improv is and I really like the, the idea that it is just all about making. It's not even about teaching them how to do good improv in a in a technical sense, which is, I guess is what we're saying—the difference between the spirit and the technical. Yep. That it is just that spirit side, yep. and it is just like your job is to make choices. Your job is to make bold choices that make the other person look good and 
not to freak out if those choices don't work out the way that you thought that they would. Right. And that's it. Like, it's just... It's just the games that I don't teach. be afraid of failure. Make big choices. The games that I teach, the technique that I do focus on, uh, it's one of them is word at a time, which is teaching you that at every word of the story, what you thought was going to happen next is going to get changed by somebody else. So let go of your preconceived notions. Uh, what comes next, which is a very Keith Johnstone game, um, both of those are, but that one really, especially because he, we're, we're in, it's just about taking stories into the future through tiny, tiny steps, right? Yeah, Neil well, and I perform that. At, uh, Pig Did you? Ago, oh, yeah. cool. Because Riley, uh, oh, Riley couldn't Riley make it. So Neil was like, oh, you know this form? You want to do it with me? Yeah. I was like, yeah, sure. Great. And it just teaches you to take ideas into the future because, you know, unlike, I, I don't know, I wouldn't purport to be an expert on other styles. I'm going to be hanging out with Joe Bill a bunch in a couple of weeks, and he and I are going to talk a lot about how the Annoyance Theater and how I.O. work because yeah, I don't know it. Yeah, I hope you can. That'd be great. He's a gr- I, I, I don't, I've never worked with him, never studied with him, but I've talked to him for like hours now, and he's such a amazing guy I'm really excited to, yeah. to, to get to know yeah, him great. but um, I'm interested in learning more from him but what I was going to say is I do know that in the UCB manual which I, which I own which is around here somewhere there, over there um, and which I've read it, like one of the things they say is don't aim for story don't aim for narrative because um, first of all one of the things it says is like it's too hard and like you'll struggle and fail which I don't agree with but I understand that mindset I don't you know I don't agree yeah. personally but it's a matter of taste um, but it also it sort of says like taking stories into the future can move you away from the thing that's working for you right now. And I kind of quibble with that. And I might be misinterpreting it. I don't want to sit here and tell you, like, UCB is wrong. Because, like, they're, they're great. They're great at what they do. And obviously everyone knows that. But I do quibble with those kinds of things. Because if you can take a story into the future, then you can keep an audience engaged and satisfied. And you can give them a dramatic, comedic, abstract, you know, whatever whatever it is they need. Melodramatic, um, satirical, or parodic, or, like, just fucking goofy story with a character who goes through time and has changed and I think it rewards people um, so I really I really like that so we teach the one on one students how to do that and we teach them how to be changed right if you're sitting on, sitting on stage and someone runs in and says I'm a time traveler and you're like oh cool my sister's a time traveler then you've avoided being changed or someone comes in and like I'm a time traveler like what that's crazy like what, what are you here to do and they're like well, we're here to tell you that um, you're the one who fucked it all up and like we have to stop you and he's like well, I didn't mean to fuck anything up and we see him go through you know, my acting in this podcast isn't brilliant, but go through <laughs> some shock and then some self-reflection and maybe some anger and then maybe, you know, it comes back around and he realizes that he has to end his own life or something. I don't know. I'm making it up. But, like, we're, we're satisfied that actions have consequences and people are changed. Dramatic action is defined as one character changing another. And if we can give that on stage, then, um, then we can interest people and hold their attention and make them happy. But as a human being, you go on stage and your number one instinct is to avoid being changed. You know, like, that's why you see a lot of fights in, like, younger yeah. improvisers because, like, right. I'm bigger than you. No, I'm bigger than you. Because if I, you just say, you're right, you're bigger than me, please don't hurt me, you're showing weakness, you're showing risk, you don't know what's going to come next. So you kind of get defensive and avoid change. So the big three things I teach students are, well, I guess there's four. Be really positive on stage. It's much easier to have everything you want and say yes to everything that comes your way. Two, um, to be changed when something comes up. So we do games and exercises that are just about, like, someone says something to you, let that affect you. Um, third, taking stories into the future. You know, like, not being afraid of someone knocks at the door, let's make the scene about not answering. Answer the fucking door and see what's there. Um, and then four was whatever I started this conversation with. Uh, letting go of preconceived notions. Um, you know, what comes next. And I think those are the skills that I want my, audience, my, my students to feel 
and then they sort of feel less less fearful, less less. They're more impervious to like, well, if something happens, what will I do? If the story is not funny, how do I respond? You know, those things don't matter as much. Yeah, yeah. I think we're like, yeah. That's why I think, hearkening back to the the spirit in technique thing. I guess what I was saying, like a little bit of improv, the improv training is a dangerous thing. I guess maybe I should now go back and caveat that to like a little bit of improv. It, that probably more applies to the technique. Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't think I don't think the spirit. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, spirit is, is good. In, a little bit of technique makes you want to follow the rules and be right. right. If and you're then, thinking like, I need to recognize a game, the game of a scene. I need to frame it, and then I need to heighten it. If that is like the, the first, the first technique of UCB of, of doing UCB style improv, then if that's what you're doing the whole time, and you're thinking like, have they said an unusual thing yet? What is this unusual thing? How are we going to play it? How am I going to like let them know that this is the game that we're playing? You're not necessarily listening. You're listening closely for a specific thing, but you're not necessarily yeah. listening to the actual... And once you've done that for years and it just becomes in the back of your mind... Totally. Like, then it's fine, but right. when you're in those steps of like being in your head... I also think we have, we have fundamentally different approaches. I think UCB and John Stone, which are the two I know the most about, and I admit, admit freely that I know far less about UCB, so again, I'm not... I'm not the expert on that at all, but it seems to me like one of the things that UCB is aiming at and says outright in the book is like, we're trying to be funny. We're trying to create comedy, yeah. which is great. I, I like comedy. I'm, I'm in favor of that. But I think that in the Johnstone style, what we're trying to do is go on stage and be truthful or be vulnerable or honest or any of those kinds of words, which more often than not aims ends up being comedic if you do it right because people see they're like oh man yeah yeah, yeah. oh I've been right. there oh god right. I mean you can listen to the saddest stories about someone's dad dying from cancer on the mopped radio hour but there's still so much there's I was listening to the saddest one about this person's dad and dying. there's still comedy she in was it. like telling jokes about how like the person in the the bed at the hospital next to them was like farting and like and like like swearing and doing all the stuff like while her dad was I heard was that like one on his deathbed it is simultaneous you're like crying and laughing right at the exact same those are my favorite moments of theater and those are my favorite moments of, of improv is when you can get there and I'm not saying that doing other stuff isn't good valid or important but I think that's what what Keith is aiming for is helping Keith Johnstone is helping you let go of your ego and his formats maestro Theater sports and gorilla are all working on working on minimizing your ego and letting go of the need to be funny and letting yourself just be I'm going to be obvious and I'm going to be honest and hopefully at the end of all that it will be funny because he's not trying to create like shit theater he wants to create new interesting ways of like watching stuff on stage right. that are really satisfying but he he doesn't think you have to aim at comedy to get comedy yeah yeah I kind of said this in my, my last interview with Justin Wilder but I was like so when I first started doing improv. And I feel like most people, like, you have this idea of, like, oh, certain things, certain schools are, like, better, or people are doing it right or wrong. And then it's, like, it's taken me, like, a while to realize that that's really, like, pigeon, pigeonholing improv to, like, think of just of improv as this very specific thing without realizing that, like, each of these theaters have different objectives. Right. And the fact that they've been around for so long and that so many people do them and the fact that they have, like... John Stone, UCB, Annoyance, IO and stuff. Like, they're clearly not bad at what they do, otherwise they wouldn't be so successful. Right. It's just that they have totally different objectives right. for what they're trying to do. So, like, he, like the, the way that Keith teaches a different way to do improv than Matt Besser would teach it, but that's right. because they're not trying to get to the same goal. And it's and it's obvious even in the way that they title the books. Like, the UCB is, is 
imp- is comedic, you know, is the comedy manual. What's, this, what's the exact title? Comedy Improvisation Manual. Yeah, the Comedy Improvisation Manual. And Keith's is Impro for Storytellers. Impro for Storytellers. <laughs> right. So it's like, why would you, the way that you, the way that you write a sketch, the way that you do a comedic sketch, and the way that you tell a story are clearly different. Yeah. Different arts that take different skills. I agree. So, like, why would you be like, well, the UCB, you know, if you're doing, if you're trying to do a John Stoney thing, why would you be like, well, the UCB manual says I should do this, or vice versa? Why would you be like, well, but there's also a lot. I mean, the the, the application of game, it's a great bit of terminology and a great way of describing a type of comedy, and it's really useful. Like, I think about game a lot of the time. It's a really funny way, fun, funny thing. You know, just noticing what's the unusual thing here? What's a way of repeating it with a regular sort of rhythm? It's it's satisfying. It's a good thing. And like, it happens in comedic routines that predate improv. Like if you go back and look at silent film, like game is happening there. It's just an observation about comedy. It's really, really astute and really well described in that book. Yeah, and yeah, I use it. That is all that there. Yeah. Because the, the way that I think about UCB is that it is, they're just trying to create things to me, I think that they're just trying to improvise sketches, like sketch, like sketch comedy. Yeah, that's probably true. And so, I think I even heard Ian Roberts say, like, our goal is to do a scene that is so good that you would say that scene could be on SNL, like as it is. Not that he didn't use SNL example, but like it's a standalone that, would be, sketch. that would be a sketch that someone good would sit down and write. Like our goal is to improvise right. as good scenes that are as good that you would be like. We could just literally go and transcribe that, and that could be on television right. or something. Which is, and yeah, so in that way, like they are just saying, "What does sketch already do? How do we like? How do we create how that? Do we codify yeah. that in order to teach it." In a, in a which is a great space. goal, and they're good at it. Keith's work started in the fifties in London at the Royal Court Theatre, where he was a play reader and, and teacher and director, and he. Um, he was noticing that his actors would sit on stage with a script and struggle mightily to look like real people interacting. And then he'd announce like a tea break, which is their version of a coffee break in England. And they would all go get their tea and their biscuits. And he would look at them and they were interacting like a bunch of normal humans. And then he would put them back on stage and he couldn't get them to look normal again. And so he started devising exercises to help make actors look normal. And from there he learned, he devised his work on status and then he began to find that they were they could be really successful and really funny when they were working on pure improvisation or impro as they call it, um, and that those classes were super satisfying and funny when they were working on those skills independent of a script. So he started bringing like let's go show it to somebody and see if they think it's funny. And people really enjoyed it and found it comical. And he started building it up from there. And eventually he found um, what's the book? Is it the Halpern Turner Halpern? Is that older? God, I wish I knew this history better. Uh, well, yeah. So she has. Is she like? There's, there's like improvisation for the theater or something. Oh, that's like that. Spolin. Spolin, thank you. I knew I was wrong with Halpern. I knew that. I just had yeah, a name. That would have been a little later. Yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah, right. No, Spolin. That's right. Which is like, which is like the 1920s and 30s she was working, I think. Yeah. That's right. Spolin, thank you. Um, improvisation Improv for the theater. The theater yeah, yeah, right. And he found some stuff in there and built on that and did, and did some of those, that work. Um, and I love that, I mean, Keith and Dell were friends. Like, they got along. They worked. Keith invited Dell invited Keith to New York and they did some stuff or Chicago it would have been at the time probably yeah yeah yeah, yeah. right to Chicago um, and um, and there was a lot of like healthy collaboration and ideas in the improv world for a while and then things just things change and Keith's not the most politically savvy guy I'm sure he went to, I mean, I've heard stories of friends of mine in 
different cities where Keith came in in the 80s and watched their improv and like, this is all shit this is rubbish and like left and they were like well fuck that guy and like no wonder it's really hard for Gemstonians yeah. to kick I've heard Susan tell a, a story right. that's a similar story yeah right right and I think that's a political and tactical error on his but part but Del Close there's no, no one in yeah, no one would say Del Close didn't tell lots of people that they, they were doing lots of shitty improv right, right. probably even more so than Keith he would pay people to drop out of his classes yeah. he would be like Here's your $150 back. Get the fuck out of my clutch. You right. suck. Right. So, but I'm sure Keith had a way of doing it. And also, when you're a special guest with a different accent from Canada, and he's like an Englishman living in Canada, people are like, what the fuck is this guy's deal? And I get that. And he's not the most delicate with feedback a lot of the time. But he's right about a lot of stuff. I, I And I also don't want that to sound like a hidden criticism. I think Keith is brilliant. Keith is one of the most interesting figures I've ever spent time with. Uh, and I really respect him a lot. But I also can clearly see how he would show up in a community where there was a lot of ego built up around some some work that Keith wouldn't agree with. Whether it was good or not, Keith wouldn't agree with it. And he would just try to demolish that in the, the way that it sounds like maybe Dell did too. Um, and I, of course, that rubs people the wrong way. So, Yeah, it's interesting that you... So, I, so the way that I think about it is, like I was saying... Is that like the two schools, or I shouldn't even say the two schools, but like... Those two schools, maybe. The, yeah, those two schools, or just, just all the schools have different have different objectives. And so like annoyance, their objective is more like to, to have people come on and feel empowered. Right. Um, so that's like the McNapier. Um, uh, so there's all the different schools. Yeah. They all have an objective, which is really like they see people doing improv and there's a, something that they that they think is problematic or something that they think should be improved. And then they come up with, oh, how do I improve that? Right. And so it just seems like with Keith, it was like, well, how do I make these people act more like natural people? Mm-hmm. With UCB, it was, how do we make these people funnier? With annoyance, it was, how do we make these people more confident or, right. feel, before, or feel, feel more empowered? Right. And, you know, I, I wanna... each school has its own origin story or whatever yeah so then I want to be clear too like Keith's work as it went along became less that was he, he got started in improvisation because he had that problem to solve and he became more interested in how, does, how do I create types of performance that haven't been done or aren't being done right now um, and ended up really being interested in the problem of letting actors release some of their fear and their ego um, those are his big big terms you know I mean I remember a quote that I wrote down last time I studied with him was, um, if I could be there every time you fail, I would whisper and say, like, smile, be happy. But I can't, so you have to train yourself to do that for me. <laughs> and I thought that was, like, a really great, like, that's where he's coming from, is, like, actors go on stage and add tension and add fear and add resistance, and those things keep good work from happening on scripted and improvised stages all across the world. So let's work on that. I think that's fundamentally what Keith's big project was. But he was also trying to create... I mean, he wrote plays that had all kinds of weird, not realistic yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. If you ever get like footage of his um, theater machine when they were a bunch of... There were four English guys touring uh, Europe for much of the 70s doing like pecking order scenes where they had like funny hats and big clown noses and balloons and they were like beating each other and trying to like the four four guys will try to like try to steal a couch from someone who's sleeping on it and it's like 10 minute clown routine improvised where there's like a pecking order like one tells two what to do and two tells three what to do and if something goes wrong he takes his hat and smashes it and like all this different stuff and it's like utterly unlike how do people really behave but at its core you watch it and it's funny because you're like 
I recognize the futility of, of the clowns. I recognize maybe like having that person who always is above me or below me. Like there's a lot in it that's still very human. It's just not at all realistic anymore. So Keith did a lot of weird stuff. I don't want to give him, I don't want to pigeonhole him as like, I want naturalism in my improv. I don't think that's what he wants. He wants actors who are not afraid to try whatever the hell it is, whether it's romance or naturalism or clown or whatever the hell. Yeah. Joe Bill said to me, and also Sean Kinley. Sean Kinley is a direct student of Keith's from Calgary. He was a physical theater maker when he was young. He still is young, and he's still a physical theater maker, so that was a bad way to say that. But he, was a, he got started as a physical <laughs> theater maker. Yeah, he got started as a physical theater maker and then got into improv at the Loose Moose Theater when Keith was artistic directing. And Joe Bill, whose origin story I don't know well enough to say it on air yet, but, um, but is, you know, comes from Chicago and is, in, the, is in, in very different school, they both said to me in the last two months... Right now, it feels like a time when those schools are coming back together and learning from one another a lot more than they used to be, and that's a really good thing. And I'm really excited to see if, yeah, if they're right about that and where that's going. I do think that that, I do think that, that would be a very good thing. I don't know if I've... I mean, I, I, don't know. I haven't traveled around, really, I guess, enough to make an inform. I know at Hideout, it seems like that is the case. Yeah. And then I kind of pose that idea to Kaiser. Uh That's episode two, listeners. Um, Kaiser's my favorite. And, yeah, a lot of people have said that that's their favorite one. Uh, I just mean Kaiser's my favorite human. Because it's also a great podcast. I've listened to that one. <laughs> uh, okay, what am I just saying? Um, yeah, I, I, like, I feel like that's happening. So it's definitely having a, happening at Hido in Austin. I feel like it's happening a lot in, like, Canada, in Europe. But I don't... I, uh, I don't get the feeling that it's really happening in Chicago or L.A. Sure. Or, or New York. Although the, the L.A. Theater Sports Company, which I haven't visited yet, I've heard is stellar. And that's a very key. So um, probably most yeah. people listening are familiar with comedy sports and they might be familiar with theater sports and they might not know that much about the difference. And I don't know that much about the difference. Like I'm not a history buff on this kind of stuff. But theater sports is Keith's format. And I'm pretty sure without casting too many aspersions that comedy sports came along after and was kind of like, oh, that's a good thing, but Keith won't give us the rights kind of a thing. Yeah, it's exactly some. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I don't want to throw people under the bus who I don't know, and I wasn't there when those things happened. But that's what I've gathered as the story. Um, and I'm sure they're both great. I've, I've not seen comedy sports. People who I love uh, in both Philly and Minneapolis do comedy sports and are really strong in it. So I'm like, you know, it's a good thing, it sounds like. But um, the LA Theater Sports Company in uh, is apparently one of the strongest I, the ITI companies sports? in the United States. Yeah, yeah I know. Can, uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm if it's theater sports or comedy sports, but I know that yeah, a lot of a lot of like famous people who are uh, in who you would consider kind of like Chicago style people did start off doing either comedy or theater sports. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, I, so I had this question earlier where we were talking about the MRI. Yeah, thing that just made me think of this other question is like is which is why. Why improv doesn't translate well to, to recorded uh, recorded mediums like basically whose line is the only successful, successful one successful ever. way that and they film like five hours of footage with edited, four great right? improvisers and edited it down right. to a half about, an hour you show see about a third yeah, yeah a third right. of what they are actually right. performing so I, I don't know so that that MRI like the fact that there are different things going off in your brain I thought it was I don't know. Maybe it's part of that. Yeah, part I of mean, that my answer, insofar as I have one, and I don't have to have one, which is nice. Well, I guess I do. People are like, why don't you film all your stuff and put it online? I'm like, because it doesn't look very good. Um, but I think 
one answer is that part of the joy of being there, the optimistic answer is that part of the joy of being there is knowing that it's happening to you and with you. And that as a pure technical feat, not a technical feat, as a content outcome, it's not as strong as a scripted work. There's lots of extreme audience members watching a live improvised show are editing for us. You make an offer that doesn't come back and they forget it with you. They, they're like, they'll, they'll sit in the editing room of their own mind and cut you know, a five second line out of the script they just saw for you and with you while you and everyone's like, oh yeah, that thing about the rabbit, that was mentioned earlier. That's weird. I forgot about that. And everyone in the room except for one or two right. people will have forgotten call, it. If all of a sudden, in the second time you call someone's name, you call them a different, you know, right. that name change. If you were watching a movie, you'd be like, this is so unprofessional. Like, right. But they, they get it. They don't love it, but they get it. They're fine with it. And if you're good natured about it, they'll be like, yeah, this is great. That's part of the thing. And that's wonderful. But you can't capture that feeling on on camera that I'm in the room while it's being done and I think that's that's the like there's something so great about improv that you can't record um as one is the optimistic way of looking at it the other the more pessimistic or defensive way is like the people who make films and television are really good and they're really highly paid and they spend a lot of fucking time on every single moment because you have to for it to come out unbelievable so when you watch a piece of film even Amateur filmmakers who are really filmmakers, which is in the, in the, the low budget, low time, low, low, low experience way, they're editing multiple versions of that thing together and cropping every little bit. And the, the reason it takes more time to in post production than it does in production is because it's really, really hard. And so that's what all of us are attuned to seeing when you watch film. And the standard of, well, we just threw up a camera and recorded a 25 minute set just doesn't live up to the genre of filmed entertainment that we're accidentally comparing it to when we watch it. Yeah, I actually, I actually really like both of those those answers because I feel like the first one ties back to that the thing we we're talking about about spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, where I was saying with non-live art, you can get like passion, but the spirit is slightly removed, and if, and if and if the spirit is such an essential part, right, of improv. And then by watching something that isn't live, that's becoming removed. Right. Then that explains... You're taking out one of the best ingredients in the thing you're making. Then the other thing, because one of... I do think that... I do think that, like, podcasts where people do improv, like, whether it's, like, Spontaneous Nation with Paula Tompkins or Matt Besser's Improper Humans or... I mean, there's, there's like, a bunch bunch of of them, yeah. ...where people are doing improv. And I feel like those ones are... There, like there can be good improv. Like it's it's not as great as seeing it live, but it's nowhere near as bad as watching a recording a, of your a set. Recording of someone do a heroin on mom's camera, camera or like, on your girlfriend's. Yeah, or know, even if it uh, is filmed well, like it's still. I don't know. It just it's just never as good recorded. But it it almost is. But it's. But it can be good in a, in a podcast form. I've heard lots of good improv that was audio recorded. And I almost wonder if that ties into, like, to that second idea where, like, when you listen to NPR and stuff, there's not there's not that much post-production. Like, if this podcast, for instance, yeah. we're gonna, like, I'm going to cut out some of the ums, maybe, or, like, cut out dead space, or if you get up to go to the bathroom or something, like, you know, and get rid of background noise and, I don't know, whatever. Like, there's going to be some editing, but it's not going to be, like... Making a radio program. I'm not making a CGI right. dire wolf that's like, right. a, you know, fighting in a battle or something. And even just, even just the everything from the lighting. When you light a 
theatrical piece. You know, we work in a scripted theater that has a bunch of lighting instruments, and we have a whole team of technicians who do lights and sounds for us, who improvise with us too. So the people lighting our shows are playing with a lot of different colors and textures and angles on purpose all the way through. It's for a live audience, and so you do it differently than when you go and you work on a movie set and try to light that, or a photo, and you try to light that. Those are all different skill sets. A lot of similar principles, but the way you apply them is different. Just like the skills, I mean, like the skills you would use for a mono scene versus a herald versus a short form show. It's all improv. They're all, it's all you know, but like you do it differently depending on what thing you're in. Right. And that's true for the lighting and the sound and the movement and the way you face the camera. So yeah, of course it's not going to translate. If you yeah. tell everybody they're going to a improvised um, Broadway show and you do a short form set for them, they're going to be like, "What the fuck?" And if you like record any live improvised show and say. This is a movie I made for release on Netflix, and they watch it. They're like, "What the fuck?" Like that's it's expectations, and I think we're just so aligned when we watch the thing on screen yeah. to expect one set of things. Because like Christopher Guest and, and Curb Your Enthusiasm and stuff do use a lot of improv successfully in making shows, right. but it still does have all that. Post- it's still like, well, that line right. was good. Let's do this scene again right. and say that line you just made up." Which is what you need to do if you're filming it, I think. I think. I'm not sure. I've never tried. I mean, there's probably a great experiment ready to be done where you do a live show with a crew on set like you were, you know, like, I mean, people do that, I guess. But like, reality television. Right, right, right. I think I've just invented something. Get a bunch of people, put them on an island. We'll call it Survivor. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. I think those are reasons. Um, all right, cool. Uh, so that was the introduction. Now let's let's do let's, the no, let's some improv, yeah. Right, some... Uh, so, well, so there's like two things that I wanted to talk to you about. I feel like we just did a good transition into one when you were talking about the lights. And then we blew it by by naming it right now. It's no longer a good transition. <laughs> now it's clunky, but it was good. It was good, and that's not what I want to talk about first. But it reminded me, and I think, it, and it's a question that I want to talk to you during that conversation. So the first thing I kind of wanted to to talk about is doing improv at a scripted theater. Which yep. I assume, I don't know. So lots of people do improv at improv theaters. Mm. So I wanted to, th- uh, so as the artistic director of, of a scripted theater, but you also... Of a theater. Of, of a theater that, that does, does both. largely scripted work. Yeah. And originally did scripted work. Right. And then now... Has evolved into this has identity. Has evolved into doing more and more improv. So I guess there would be a few questions. How does... How do you think being that type of theater affects the improv that you do? Whether it is more, whether that's part of the reason that it's more theatrical than comedic, or whether that's it's a good fit for us that we were a scripted theater where someone showed up with Johnstonian principles that lines up with our original yeah, mission, right, exactly. and I think we might have rejected it if it was some other school. I'm not sure that we would have, and I, you know, but like we might have been like, oh well, we're not really just trying to only do comedy, but this was like this is about how to be yourself, this is about how to be honest on stage, and we're like, cool, that seems helpful, let's look at it. Whereas if they were like, this is how to make good sketch, we would have been like, well, we're not a sketch company, we're a, a right. play company or whatever. I don't know. Um, so that was lucky. Then, I mean, we first added it as a training program and quickly saw the value and added it as like a late night feature, and continue to notice. And one of our missions is. I really truly believe that everybody is interesting. So when you listen to uh, Moth podcast, a lot of those people aren't entertainers. They're people who went through something and are good at sharing that experience. Or if you sit next to like the weird old crank at the bar and you're just like, hey, buddy, like, what's your story? And he tells you about like his kid in the motorcycle accident or whatever. You're like, wow, this is really interesting. And like, 
then you remember like this is this guy's like the barfly who's here every night. Like, I don't want to. What am I doing? Like, what are we? And like maybe you go away. Maybe you don't. Maybe you have compassion and you like buy the guy a drink. I don't know what happens. I'm, that's not my point. My point is humans are interesting. If you're like babysitting your cousin's like four year old and the four year old's telling you about the dinosaur and how the dinosaur is eating like the the birthday cake she made for her her teddy bear, you're like, uh huh. I don't quite get it, but I'm interested. Like there's you know store people are good. People are interesting. That's, we like people. So that's part of our theater's kind of premise. And the way we do improv means you can be a 65-year-old lawyer getting close to retirement who wants to be in a show for the first time, or a high school kid who's afraid of most things but did tech for a little while. It's like, I'll try going on stage. Or, you know, like a PhD candidate studying environmental whatever who's like, yeah, like, I want to do this. This seems like it'd be a cool outlet for me. Then all of those people can work together and be on stage if you're only training to be obvious and not worrying about what's the sense of humor that's going to line up with your 16-year-old and your 75-year-old and your or 65-year-old and your and your you know other guy. Um, so it's a tool that our theater uses to make anybody who wants to make an entry point for anyone who wants to be on stage to at least take a class and be like, oh, this is cool. This is how I might go about that. And with scripted work, it's harder. To get people that entry point. It still happens. Lots of organizations do it. We do it some, especially with younger people. But with the improv classes, it's an easier connection. You don't have to memorize anything. You don't have to be intimidated by the director telling you you're doing it wrong. Go back and don't come through that door until he says, the balloons are ready. Like, you know, like you have to just, as a teacher and a director, you have to say, we're going with whatever happens. It's an improv setting. So everybody kind of naturally slides into it. And so it gives us a better entry point for building that community and training those people. And I can't believe there are scripted theaters that don't do improv. I mean, now, I can believe it. But when I, like, look at who we are, it's just another way of getting people to express themselves on stage. And it's a really, really good one. Yeah. Not to go, like, all businessy, but, I, like, I would I would imagine that it's, it's a good complementary stream of income because you can't really have, like, you're not going to really have a main stage show at a... At a like a smaller town theater, you know, obviously if you were in New York or Chicago or something. But so you have your maestro improv show at 9.30 on a Friday night. Right. You're not really going to like host a main stage scripted show at, at a night at 9.30. Yeah, right. Right. So it's just another, but, but late night comedy. Yeah. So, so you can get, you know. Yeah, we don't charge enough for our classes or shows because we're not that kind of people. We, we probably could do more, but we don't. But it's good to have the building in use. It's good to be getting people in the community. Like, I like that place. I, they have an identity that I connect with. I, this is what I do there. And it fosters growth and community and collaboration, which are really key to running any organization. I mean, I would probably say, despite the fact that we do really good work and we get awards for our scripted shows and we get awards for our improvised shows and we're traveling and we're sending people to teach and perform in other communities, we're still really, truly a community organization that achieves community through theater first and foremost i think which is weird to say when you're doing really high level work but like i think what the town of wakefield rhode island and what 2018 both require are places where people can see one another in person and feel some positive connection to the people around them and be like yeah i have a belonging and an identity that's wrapped up in something tangible in the world and we provide that and it just so happens that in so doing we're able to create really outstanding scripted and improvised theater also. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. It, it totally makes sense. Because I think about that, I think about that sometimes, like in terms of, specifically about this theater, whereas, yeah, like your mission statement is very community, community-minded. And so even with 
with with the improv specifically, rather than going in with, which I'm sure UCB probably wouldn't argue with this too much, their mission statement is probably to make the funniest, to put on the funniest friggin' shows that we can. Right. And, like, nothing, nothing wrong with that. That's fine. No, that's like, great. Do that. That's, that's a goal. That's, yeah, yeah, we're going to put on the funniest yeah. shows possible versus we want to create a place where all different people from the community, like you were saying, from 16-year-olds to 65-year-old retired And lawyers, actually, you know, I... I I have a student right now who's 14 and a student right now who's 84. Yeah. I'm not joking. Like, and this is, and it's not like those are outliers. It's kind of like a steady progression between, which is great. Yeah. And I want to be like, I mean, community is like a dirty word in the theater where they go, oh, community theater, you guys must do shit. Like, community is a fancy word for a sense of, or no, like a, a, a two-cent word for a, a sense of a place where you belong that gives you satisfaction and where you feel valued. And that's what we create. And we do it through pretty good work, I think. Yeah. I, th- so. I definitely think that, the, like you're saying, like the improv is probably a hugely... If that is your... Say that was your goal before the pre-improv, you know, this community mission mm-hmm. of where everyone can feel like they belong. I feel like incorporating improv into your palette, whatever, mm-hmm. really goes a long way to helping you meet that goal because you can get so many people... You know, people who wouldn't do audition for scripted work can right. come in and do improv. I mean, I would have nothing to do with this theater if it wasn't improv. I, don't mean, I didn't mean that in that way. I wouldn't, have nothing, I wouldn't know about this Showing theater. your true I colors, Clay. I never, I never would have entered the door because, like... That's not your thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah but now, sure. I, I mean, now I go see scripted work. Too, yeah, you do. Like, because it's a community. It's a place where I... You know the people on stage and you care about them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, even getting people to come and see the scripted work even, yeah. Yeah. Doing the improv is... They're all spokes on a wheel, and we're just trying to get people onto the wheel and then move down the spoke closer to the hub. Yeah. I guess. It's a good metaphor. Thanks. I think someone else used it first, but... I'm sure someone has used that metaphor <laughs> about something. I've heard it before, but I can't place it. At some time. Yeah. I, you know, and it's like, it comes back to, again, what is your goal? I think if you're in a big competitive market, you've just got to, like, hey, we're going to be fucking funny. We're going to give angry people, sad people, and happy people all a reason to go buy a beer and laugh. And that's awesome. Do that. And use whatever tools you can. But remember that improv and theater and art, like all these things, improv is a space that is defined, an amount of time that is defined, and anything you can think to do there. And if you pick a training style or a form that aims for comedy or aims for drama or aims for catharsis I mean right um, Rebecca Northen who I haven't mentioned yet um, but is one of the best improvisers in the world in my opinion she's in Toronto right now she has two shows that I've got a lot of experience a lot of familiarity with another one that's going on right now too Undercover I think or Uncovered something like that is the one I haven't seen or heard at all yet um, but Blind Date and Legend Has It are the two shows that she's got a lot of notoriety for Blind Date she goes on stage with an audience member who she maybe pre-screens like in the lobby before and she's just talking to people. And, like pre-screens is a heavy word. But I think she like, she like meets people and it's like, you seem like you'd really want to be funny. You seem a little too shy. And she finds a person or two. She goes on stage for an hour with them on a blind date on stage. And the pitch is that like she's looking for, looking for love and they try to find love. And I think she often does. I haven't seen all of her shows. But, um, and it's a... It, she reveals stuff about herself in a completely improvised, spontane- spontaneous way. She reveals stuff about the person who she's learning about on stage. They have genuine interactions. They don't stay in love afterwards. It's not a real, like, you know, she's not actually, like... But the, the date feels really real. 
and really authentic and really impressive. And that's her form. And you probably laugh a lot because he's like, oh, my last relationship ended this way. Uh, and you're like, oh, God, I know that. And he's not trying to be funny. He's just telling you something that's true. And he's a little exasperated because it's true. Or she'll reveal a fear of hers and you'll be like, mm, shit. Yeah, I know what that is. And it's really, really compelling. And it's funny and it's dramatic. And it's impressive and it's made, it's sold up a lot of seats at a lot of places. And she's doing a great job. Legend has it. Similar concept. She gets a child on stage and does a fantasy. It's not just her. She has some other performers. It's a fantasy story about um, this world where the mumplings are these like cute little characters. Not, not, not like hobbits, but that's like the best quick analogy is like just like like nice little people called mumplings and there's an evil witch uh who's domineering over them and there's orcs and there's dragons and all this stuff and there's actors who have masks and costumes to do all these things and the child becomes the hero and saves the mumplings and it's an improv show and there's devices like there's a brilliant moment where she says um to the hero who has a sword to do stage combat with improvisers a child with a sword. She's like, in this world, the slower the blow, the deeper the cut. And the kids they do these big slow motion sword fights with improvisers. And it's amazing. And it's moving. And it's occasionally funny. And there's safety built in in lots of different ways. And it's so artful. And it's an improv show, even though there's some stuff that's known. And I would argue that that's no more scripted than a herald where you know what the beats are. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just another, it's another form to put your improv into to help you achieve a specific kind of thing. And it's amazing. And I forget why I started talking about Rebecca Northen. But she's coming to our she's festival in a couple of weeks. And yeah, I hope, I hope you get to meet her. She's amazing. Uh, yeah, I can't remember why we started yeah. talking about So. Well, we're here in this fancy studio. We could just play back the tape, couldn't we? <laughs> no. no, we could. Well, so one of the things, well, one of the things I want to talk about is so one of the things I think is cool about your improv setup, being a scripted theater, is lighting. Hmm. Whereas... So you have you know a full lighting room that you would use for for a scripted show, and you get to use that for your improv for your improv shows. Whereas most improv theaters, you know, what's the point of having a theatrical right. theatrical light setup? Yeah. So I think that's one of the cool things that something that like I, I don't think a lot of I don't think a lot of uh, most improvisers ever think about lighting because it's not an issue, mm. but is. Is kind of not like a big part of your part, but the the lighting person is another is essentially another improviser, yeah. right? And we also often have for most of our shows at least one musician playing along, often on piano, but sometimes guitar, electric or or acoustic, often a percussionist. Um, and lately, we've been doing a lot of shows with auxiliary percussion, someone on like djembe and the glockenspiel, or like a couple of things like that, tambourine. Um, uh, Catherine does a lot of music for us and her primary instruments are violin and harp and she'll have those and so when those instruments come in on a scene and the lighting shifts from this sort of warm amber to this cool blue and the harp starts playing like you feel a whole bunch of stuff before the, like on stage as an actor as an improviser you're standing there like okay this is, we're going to start this scene and someone does something with the lights and the angle of the light changes and it gets darker in the room and there's more of a bluish tint to the light and the harp starts playing you are transported before you said a word. It's like the best, most generous offer in the world. And they're not, you know, there's no one who wrote out in a notebook, these are going to be the nine scenes tonight, get your tech ready. They're just improvising with you. They're making it up with what they've got. Right. And it's really rad. We leave a lot on the table when we take pride in minimalism. I'm not trying to be caustic with this opinion. There's a lot of festivals and, and places where they're like, we're proud of the fact it's a bare stage and two chairs and we can make anything happen. I love that. I, I would. Be, I am proud of that. When we do that, I think it's awesome. But I think that if you get so proud of it that you're afraid of bringing in other things, or you look at someone who's using 
costumes in their show. You know, everyone's going to dress fancy tonight or whatever. And they're like, ah, it stops being the thing we're after. Why? What are you afraid of that, like, having a violin and a cello accompanying your set tonight? What are they going to take away? Or having a real couch or a real bed. Having a real bed on stage that was built with shorter legs in the front so you can kind of see into it is amazing. You can do really cool stuff if you trust each other. You can do really yeah. bad stuff if you don't trust each yeah, other. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> agree about the, the music and the lighting because those are, those are people who you are improvising with. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're a team of improvisers. And I definitely think that with, when, if you're doing, um, if you're doing like full-length scripted stuff or any like decent amount, any more than a half an hour, mm-hmm. half an hour piece, then I definitely think props and, and costumes are useful. I just think I think the reason this isn't I think the reason that a lot of people are against them in more either like short form or like montage things is because if you have a bed on stage then say you want to travel say you're like we cut to the grocery store then it's like then you have a bed on the stage or say you're like oh now we're going to do a scene where we run around and I chase you right. and now there's like a bed in our way or, well it depends on the size of the stage for sure I agree with that but if you can slide the bed back, I mean, if the audience can imagine these chairs are a bed, they can imagine that this bed isn't in this scene. Right. If chairs can be anything, why can't a bed? Yeah, and it's not, yeah, right. And it's not even like, it's like the audience is is trusting us all the time. Let's trust them too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. That's a, if you have a if you have a six by six stage and you're playing in the corner of a bar or whatever, like there's stuff you can't do, and I'm not trying to be like, right. oh, you don't have a theater, so you're not doing like do whatever's exciting to you. Right. But I, a lot of it is because you have a theater and you have problems for sure. doing it in a black box that you only get to rent on a Friday night. Right. Then like why you're gonna carry in a coach and carry in? No, a but I would bring a suitcase. I mean, I everywhere I go when I go to teach or play other places, I always bring a little tote bag. Um, I don't always bring my cowboy stuff because I have a cowboy character who I've been playing a lot lately. It's really fun. But I always bring a, for, a fedora with a pipe and some prop cigarettes that make smoke, um, some coins, some earrings, uh, a latex mask if I have one at the moment, a clown nose. What else is in there? Um, I bring a cane. It's like a little portable thing um, that's just like, eh, this could be fun. Often I don't use the stuff. Sometimes I do. If you come on with a fedora and a pair of glasses, right, with like either fake glass or no glass in them. If you're doing a show, you're doing a short form show, you're doing like like a maestro with theater sports, a comedy sports or whatever. Someone says, uh, let's do an older couple. And you put on a fedora and a cane and a pair of glasses and a pipe. Man, it's really cool. And you don't have to use it all the time, but you can. Yeah, I think that's another... Uh... I think that's kind of another third person that you could think of. It's also like, so you have the lighting, the musician, like a stenographer. I feel like I'm accidentally resisting your desire to talk about the lighting. I'm sorry. We you know, we kind of mentioned it. I don't know. Do you have a... Uh, well, let me finish this thought. Because yeah. it'd also be cool to have a prop person, but who is totally part of the improv show, mm-hmm. where they just have a basket of prop, and then as things happen, they're like, oh, here, like... Oh, we cut to an old couple. Okay, right. here's a here's a great here's some stuff. Yeah, here's a here's a cane, which I feel like could be. And they have to be. The only thing is, I've seen it fail. They have to also be trying to make the show, not trying to be funny. If they're going to get a gag out of a prop, then the prop is is worthless. Right. If, you know yeah. what I mean? You have to not use it. a prop. Can be hysterical, but a prop sh- never let the audience catch you being funny. All the more so if you're. No, everybody. Never let the audience catch you being funny. Be funny. Funny's fine. Funny's great. I love when the audience is laughing. It's 
the best feeling in the world. But never let the audience catch you trying to be funny. That takes away all of their trust immediately. And I think if a prop person is like, I'm going to run out with a blonde wig and make some, like, I don't know, like, make some kind of interesting character suddenly cheapened somehow, or, like, I want to get a laugh by throwing this thing on a person at the moment, you know, then that sonographer needs to be told to stop. But if they're like, oh, you want to do an old couple? Here, I've got these items. Are they interesting to you? And you hand them to them, and they're like, eh, yes, no, and they take some and not others, and that person's just there to facilitate? It's the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I do think there are... uh... There are lots of room to yeah, incorporate other non-actors as part of the improv. Yeah. And they still... You're doing a show and you're like, Maggie, can I get some more light? And she's like, no! And you're like, ah! Like, the audience loves that. I mean, if she's just being mean. But, like, if it's real, it's so funny and so fun. And it's, just, it's another human who can make your show more interesting. Yeah. Have fun doing it. I don't know. That's how I, that's how I work. Yeah. So I think... Yeah, I think the light's... The lights are, are a cool thing. I thought about, so I, so one of my last teams at Pig did, uh, we did a Herald. I was thinking that it would be so cool to do like a lit Herald where one of the Herald, are, you know, there's like the three beats and then they, then they mm-hmm. come back and group game and all these things. And it'd be so cool to do it with lighting where like, mm. you know, so you have your three beats and it could be like yellow, blue, and red. And then, I don't know, I would think like. There's so and, and there's so many forms. I was just specifically yeah, yeah, Herald. yeah. But I feel like there's so many, uh, even like UCB style forms, um, like less theatrical forms that could still be made even cooler by like by incorporating incorporating lighting into it. And you guys get to do that. So I mean, it, if if someone in your team has a laptop and can spend some time downloading millions of sound effects, and you're plugged into the sound system, oh, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's another, and someone uh, someone starts a scene skipping rocks, and you bring up the sound of light rain falling, or of waves, or of seagulls, or whatever, you know, you that's beautiful, and it's easy, and it's I mean, it's not cheap in the sense you need to have a sound system and a, a laptop, but most people have access to those things. Not everybody, and I'm not trying to step on you who don't, but if you do. Use it. Use it. You know, like, it's a scene where someone's at church and a church bell rings and it helps you get there faster and more effectively. It's cool. Yeah. And it's a fucking challenge. The person on the board, like the soundboard, has to try and has to work hard and they're pushing themselves and taking risks. And they're like, I think this is the church bell. Oh, it's more of like a ship's horn. And then they're like, well, yeah, now we'll be embarking soon. So have your communion and then go back to your rowing stations or whatever. And it's like a different scene. And that's great too. It's improv, right? Yeah. I think so often improv, what is funny about improv is like going with mistakes Right, like someone accidentally does something, right. and then that just becomes part of the reality. Right, and I think uh, well, the way you were kind of describing it, if you, the more other environmental things you add in, like sound effects or music and light, the more well, this is gonna sound. I don't know how this goes out, but like the more opportunity there are for mistakes, but in a good way, like good the good mistakes. Yeah, yeah. the more opportunity uh, there are for for the only bad mistakes are ones that are born of. Malice or ego. If right. I'm or or not paying attention, as in not knowing somebody's name, like yeah, 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 but yeah. That's, that's a separate. Yeah, right. That can be frustrating, but and I guess that is still rude and malice because you're not listening to your scene partners. Like that's a result of the fact that you didn't pay attention when someone was named five times. Right and now you're like, but it's still an offer. Jerry, are you are you okay? You, you've been dropping my name a lot. 
Yeah. I'm worried about you. I mean, that's our that's our pet name. You're not supposed to call me that at work. Yeah. Or like, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, right. I always do something with it. Are you drinking on the job or? You know, like I hate it when you call me my twin brother's name. You know, he died in that car accident. Right. Or whatever. It's interesting. You're right. There are mistakes that are born of laziness, malice, selfishness. But usually the person missed the name. Sometimes people miss... I know a handful of people who have a problem with names. Oh, yeah. I, and that's, I have a horrible problem with but, names. But there's also, like, they're just... They're in a, they're, something about the moment they're in is making them plan or evaluate instead of listen. And probably the biggest corrective that's needed is for the environment, not for them. So they don't have to feel like they have to be good. And they can just listen. Yeah. I don't know. That's, you know, not helpful. <laughs> or, it's, or it's either too helpful or not helpful enough. I'm not sure which. Helpful in a vague way. Yeah. If people want to be good, it all goes to pieces. If you want to be a good improviser... Go on stage, say yes a lot, get off, wait, do it again, and quickly become a good improviser. If you try to go on stage and be a good improviser, you're going to struggle. Keith says that. I'm just stealing his words, but it's it's true. All right, I think that's a great, yeah. I think that's a great ending. Is it? Ending piece. Yeah. Cool. You, you literally just said how to be a good improviser. Yeah. Seems like a good... How to be a good improviser. A good button. Don't try to be a good improviser. Just go listen, say yes, get off when you're not needed. You've been listening to Improv Town. If you enjoyed this episode, rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're in the Rhode Island area, don't forget to check out all the great local improv. Pig, the Providence Improv Guild, has shows every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 8. The Contemporary Theater down in Wakefield is currently doing Maestro Improv at 9.30 on Fridays. And the Bit Players do Shore Form down in Newport every Friday and Saturday night at the Firehouse Theater. And that's BYOB, so that's always fun. You can also check out Improv Jones, Rhode Island's longest-running improv show, on the first Saturday of every month. That's down at the uh, AS220 Black Box in Providence. Last but not least, there's a new improv theater in town, Wage House, which has shows every Friday night at 8 in Pawtucket. And many of these theaters also offer great improv classes, so don't forget to check those out as well. I'm sure Google can help you find everything you need. See you next time.